Be good. <laughs> Hello there, friends and strangers. Thanks for tuning in to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Couch, and with my wife, Tiffany, and our little dog, Pele, we're traveling from California to Alaska down to Argentina in our custom-built Sprinter van. We're doing these little podcasts here on the road with people doing fun and interesting things. Now, most of the people that we meet are just random, by chance, uh, spur of the moment, they've got an interesting tale, and we want to hear it type of type of scenarios. This one, however, is a little bit different. We were introduced to our guest today, Mr. Joel Solomon, through a mutual friend, David Kupfer. Now, David has got just a Rolodex full of, of hip and interesting people that just happen to be on our route. Um, and, and he made the introduction between Joel and Tiffany and I, and I you know, looked up Joel, I read uh, snippets of his book, and sort of prepared myself for, for one thing, and was unmistakably <laughs> surprised by the guy that I met. Uh, Joel invited us over to his home in on Cortez Island. Uh, it was a beautiful day. You'll hear eagles in the background, and uh, it was just gorgeous. And, and Joel gave us... He's just a thoughtful, soulful individual who, um, who wrote a beautiful book about money, which is not a phrase I don't, uh, that I've maybe ever said. But his book, uh, The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose, and Capitalism. Man, it's, it's cool. It's really beautiful. It's, it's not your typical um, sort of be aggressive and, and lead and don't follow type of venture capital book. It's a, it's a book about philosophy and love and um, what's the highest and best purpose of money. And it, it's, not, it's not what I expected of a book on money. And uh, the guy who wrote it, is was not what I expected to meet. He, he, you know, he's a busy, busy man who's the, you know, the chairman of a venture capital firm, and he's on the board of a number of different projects. You know, typically those are, you know, these Type A personalities that are just pushing, pushing, pushing. That's not this guy. He's he's certainly hardworking and certainly busy, but he's coming at it from a place of compassion, and love, and uh, and a joy for the work, and a sense of purpose and. I don't know. It's, uh, it was refreshing to get to sit with Joel and to uh, to get his take on the world, and we were just I don't know grateful for his time because I know he's a busy character. So I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoyed recording it. And if you're uh, interested at all in following along with what we're doing, you can go to mtp.dog forward slash journal on Instagram and Facebook at Monkey Tooth Podcast, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash Monkey Tooth where you can, uh, you can see other things that we put up that we don't normally put up on the website. And while you're there, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. You can patronize us all you want. All right, so that's it. That's all I'm going to say for now. I want to get right into our conversation with Mr. Joel Solomon. Share and enjoy. The simple start is never simple. I 
the quick history would be two lineages, one German Jews that came to the U.S. in the mid-19th century, and the other was a 12-year-old Russian Jew, Russia, who knows, Lithuania, it's hard to know, that was uh, put on a boat to escape the 20-year conscription of the Tsar's army. Which would, and he had cousins in Atlanta, and so they went to Atlanta, and then they had a Ku Klux Klan march around the Jewish neighborhood. And uh, there's a famous story about Jewish kid named Leo Frank, they got a, but, and they moved up to Chattanooga where it was quieter, and so that's my father's lineage. So my father's a classic first generation child of an immigrant, and his family had some cousins there, and they worked their way up and and uh, started movie theaters, and then they bought a television license, but they decided it wouldn't work, and they sold it. But then they uh, they had a a tornado took down one of the theaters, the dr the drive-in theaters, and so they th they had a great piece of land, and they th thought they'd try out the new thing called shopping center, and so they said, I can, my memory is it was the first shopping center in the South or something like that. It was an early one, and it turned into a top ten shopping mall development entity, and my uh, early. Canadian influence was they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And so I, you know, I, I had a lot of issues with a lot of things. The South was still Jim Crow, colored bathrooms. My family had colored movie theaters. Um, and I ended up, because the public schools were so bad, I ended up in military school. My father had gone there. He was very proud of it. My mother and father had a debate when uh, their dating was. They were already getting to be too old at 32 and 23 in that era. They were supposed to be married and having kids. My father got involved with his political friend who had been a, worked up to be senator of the U.S. and ran for president named Estes Kefauver. And he lost to Adelaide Stevenson in 52, and my father got a blind date with my mother to the convention. And then they dated by 16-hour car drives. Maybe three times they saw each other, three weekends or something, and they got married. I mean, it last took took nine months, but that's how I guess how it worked. And they got married, and uh, my mother turned out to be uh, a nonconformist, an early feminist, had careers, worked full time, worked in political. They, uh, politics was a, a key thread, which I think came from Jews always worried about was it safe, and be involved, and know who the people are, and kind of know the lay of the land. But my mother would uh, end up with jobs like managing the gubernatorial campaign in our congressional district, which those were unusual roles for women. And then she later had a, had a career which worked for the, under Kennedy, worked at the State Department doing the first white recruiter on black campuses for the government. And so she was modern and progressive and um, questioning a lot of things and she became an artistic photographer and she's now 88 and she's finishing her next show and her next book and so I got influenced by both sides heavily and the a key moment was the 1968 Democratic Convention when I was at home alone and my parents were out and I watched the rioting in the street or the, the police riot as yeah. I like to call it Absolutely. Um, yeah. and uh the whole world's watching. The whole world's watching. And so anyhow, the combination of the 60s and all of that stuff, I was really dissatisfied in the South. 
I wasn't happy in military school. Um, and so skipping some time, my first route out was a summer internship with Jimmy Carter at the Democratic National Committee before he was running for president. And I got told that summer, Jimmy's going to run, and here's the strategy paper. <laughs> and it was a 16-page map of how he was going to win the presidency. And later I showed that to my university professors, and I said, i got to take off and double up all my classes this year and finish a semester early because I'm going up to New Hampshire and working college campuses around. And uh, Jimmy Carter's, who is going to be president of the United States, and here's how. Yeah. <laughs> and so... But about the, shortly after he did get elected, I had an incredible experience. I did get out of the South. Um, I, by the way, kept my, in case we don't come back to this, I'm still rooted to Nashville. I make two trips a year. I'm involved in business politics and good things in Nashville the best I can. Um, and anyhow, I got diagnosed with this genetic kidney disease. And that was the escape ticket because there was nothing, it was like my father's pressure to come in the shopping mall business. Um, it's hard to describe what my mother's pressures were, they weren't that. Anyway, um, I decided to have to figure out the meaning and purpose of life if I was gonna die soon, or could die soon. And so I went on a search to try to figure out how to t what was the best way to live my life and how, what was the best way to take care of myself. And Andy Weil had done his first book and I wrote a letter to him through the publisher. And I said, I got this thing. I don't know what to do. And he invited me to come to uh, out on the far end of Long Island where he was working on his second book. And I spent the weekend there. And he um, basically said, moderation and work on your inner skills. Be a happy person and don't be angry and that kind of thing. And you need Western medicine and you need alternative. And if you break your arm, don't pray it to get fixed. Like, go to the hospital. <laughs> and there are a lot of things you can do for wellness and for you know for yourself. So so ultimately that led to him being here, which is a story I can tell you if you want. But I do want. Okay. Um, but I took off on seek and search, and I pretty much left behind everything. Got in a backpack. Got a backpack and. Spent the first winter in Cumberland Island, Georgia, picking oysters yeah. on the island and bit by myself. Spent a couple weeks there and then decided, okay, I'm just going to hitchhike across the country. My friends have been trying to recruit me to Cortez Island. Uh, and I took about four months to hitchhike and, and uh, hook up with another friend. That happened because of the gardening school at on Occidental, on Occidental Road. I mean, on uh, Coleman Valley Road in Occidental. Yeah, beautiful. And so I met, I told you, these people that ended up coming here. And uh, so I got here in 1980, and I didn't like intentional community politics. It was too much like Washington, D.C., <laughs> but just rookier. Right. And it all looked the same. You know, it was like sure. people are being the same. No matter... And so somebody, a guy came through and he told me about an orca research laboratory, uh, some more islands to the north, much more remote, but not too far. And I went and spent three years there as a caretaker, uh, pushing the tape recorder button and feeding the dogs and building gardens and otherwise don't burn down the place. And so I spent three years there with boxes of books, 
a lot of time alone. I had my, who became my first wife, uh, was there part of the time with me. We were, met her the first day I got here to Cortez Island. Um, still a close friend. She's around our life and here. Now she lives down the other side. And anyway, there's lots more stories in there, but that is what, there's the, that's the chapter, that's the journey through questioning, discovery, and beginning of, I wouldn't call it clarity, but pathways. Yeah, a, a direction. So that relationship with death that you had as a young man, you've since had a, a kidney transplant and have, um, for the time being, won the battle with, uh, with that kidney. I have postponed death. You've postponed it. What is your relationship to death now? Uh, I'm grateful for death. I don't actually want to be here indefinitely. Life is full, and uh, I put out every ounce I got, pretty much. And I'm going to be ready when the body fades away and re- let me rest. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead and the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Laying you down Silence is To be born again To be born again I love to hear that at all, but particularly from a guy who has a 500-year vision. Because a lot of these guys you hear who have, you know, this, they want to prolong life and extend their, extend themselves and project their consciousness into the future. They don't really have a plan for the future. They just want to be there. Well, or the, or the tech world, which is designing the plan for the future. Sure. But it's, you know, you've got a pen and paper. I've been thinking this out. You may have had some mystical experiences. I don't know what has led you to the, the, the guy that you are now, but that, that you've come up with, a, you have a 50-year plan and a 500-year vision, uh, and, and you're okay with dying before, before all that is, is said and done, I think is kind of more beautiful than just, I want to be around, I, gotta, I want to extend my life and live to 500, and uh, I think that's... I, bas- I think that was an influence from... Uh, uh, from land-based people prehistoric you know that you when you go and you look and see how did how did people live and what happened and how did i mean the 500 year thing was it was the 500th year anniversary of columbus and like some great things happened and some not great things happened and and uh if down here at the beach in front of hollyhock we we booked hollyhock for the group that i was working with and um in the winter storms like like last night was a summer storm but and actually ask the question, what could we do to affect 500 years? And that's the only 500-year plan there is. Yeah. It's, it's a metaphor. Yeah. And the 50-year or the 500-year vision, I mean, I can say things about how I dream the world could look, but I don't have a clue. Sure. And I don't know how to have a clue about that. Except that if everything does collapse, the plant kingdom will take care of it and consciousness will grow back again and we'll get another chance. Yeah. That's, my, that's how I deal with – that's how I stay – okay with yeah. watching the collapse of 
too many things. So anyway, 50-year plan uh, was the idea that we have 50-year working lifetime is a legitimate thing you could try for. And so what are the phases of life? And I, I can say more about it, but that was, that was what, um, that helped me calm down. Yeah. Helped calm a lot. My meaning and purpose in life is to be an ancestor. A good one. I don't care if I procreate. That's not the point. Yeah. And I, I have not procreated. I have not. Where's the joy in this for you? What, what makes you happy in this? A sense of purpose. Ha- I, having a good idea what makes me tick. What do I love? How do I, how do I get love? I'm obviously talking about the higher form of that. Um, and sense of purpose, happy life. I get to be around, get to be in in nature, get to be around incredibly inspiring people, pretty much all the time. And I have a huge satisfaction of sense that I'm useful, and that's that's the drive. Yeah. As useful as I can be while I'm here, while love, joy, happiness, uh, diverse experience, interesting, wonderful people. That that seems that seems to me what life's about, and death's part of life. And indeed, it's it's hard. I have I struggle with uh, with death, the idea of it. I, I can't help it. Uh, I feel like I talk about this all the time on the sh- on the podcast. But my my mother is a hospice and palliative care um, nurse. Has been for her entire career. She's seventy three ish, and uh, and still works in that field. And I, I grew up around it. I know it's very much a part of life. I guess my trouble with it is is the consciousness. And it's interesting to hear everyone's take on what consciousness is and what you know you're going to turn into when you're gone and. That sort of thing. That's, I guess that's my trouble with it is I, I, I worry about, I, I have a fear of the consciousness surviving my body. <laughs> I would rather it did not. And there's no answer. There's a, you know, uh, but it's good to hear someone who's got it. I just think we're tapping into the consciousness, not my consciousness. Right. I mean, I have, uh, I have a, an interpretation and a model and a persona of how I use, uh, be with it. But I don't, I don't know that I really think there's something that's all mine. Mm. So you've had your ego dissolved at some point in your life. Well, I won't go that far. I, li- I like ego. <laughs> I think egos you may have got it back. are helpful. Came back into resolution, perhaps. Maybe, but I, it's more like you, the ego isn't is a tool or you know is a factor, just like my body or yeah. my mind, and so I don't. I want. I want a kind, gentle, strong ego that's steered properly. Hmm. I like the sound of that. I love the sound of that. But it's uh, for the two of us who've gone very long on the right now and have shorted the future significantly. Uh, how? And you don't have to worry about offending us. We're pretty. We're pretty relaxed about everything, but how would you say? And I've given you just the briefest of what we're doing. 
Is it just um, personally irresponsible and reckless of us to have quit our jobs and have no plan for the future, or is it just uh, is it like some sort of social harm that we may be doing by <laughs> by just? I mean, we've literally just quit our jobs and saved enough money for the next two years to travel and and eat and not be a burden on anyone. And after that, we just have to figure it out. Well, I wouldn't frame it as harming anything. Um, I think that reflection, synthesizing, germinating, sensing, uh, is actually a crucial practice to do in life. So it comes in lots of different forms. And I would say I spent a lot of years out of productive activity. And that, in retrospect, was one of the most important contributions I made because I became a better person. And if I'm a better person, who, yeah. you know, butterfly flaps its ring. I mean, who knows? How many butterflies am I, fl- am I flapping? Yeah. And so I think it's healthy and important. So if you were, had animosity towards and you were critical of people who are working hard on what they believe in, which I, of course, doubt that you, you would. But so if you, if you become alienated and a negative force, well, that's a different. Sure. But to do it for peace and gentleness and consciousness is got, got to do it every day, got to do it every in other moments. And ultimately, it's one of the greatest gifts if we've got the privilege and affluence to do it, to take some time out and really let ourselves renew, redesign. We're in school. Yeah. It's a weird school, but we're we're learning from everyone that we meet. I mean, from a person who has nothing. I mean, we, we met a guy the other day who has $300 every other week or something like that. That's his income, $300 every other week. And the guy's been through so much trauma and so much pain, and he's a happy man. He's very happy, and it's it's interesting to see the achievability of of joy and happiness, independent of income and, and money. It, it's it leads me to a, uh, my next rambling question. But you mentioned the ego as a uh, sort of a story that frames how you navigate the world. I feel that way about money. It's one of those things that we've just agreed to agree upon as a species that money has a value and that we can trade it for goods and services. It's like that we all agree that, that there are atoms and that there's a germ theory of disease and that's one of those nearly world-uniting universals. And you use ego as a tool and you use money as a tool. Do you, I don't know how to necessarily frame this, do you believe in money? As a thing, or you just do you see it as a story? How do you see? Yeah, I think it's a story we agree upon as a means to cope with the confusing dimension that started with people who had salt trading for dried fish or whatever. <laughs> and so, as you go from 100,000 human beings on the planet, I don't know, and you go to a billion, and you, so you multiply the need to have some kind of means of exchange and to represent something and so it develops further and further then people who maybe are um, at lower evolution of emotions and 
personal mastery, maybe, uh, who def- get stuck on the things that I gave you some list of what matters to me, but they get stuck on power, greed, f- fear. Fear is usually like fear, starting place. And then greed becomes the accumulation of things that attempt to mask or anesthetize fear. And then power grows from that, and then bad behavior is, is much more likely. So, so what was a simple, these shells or this salt has the, the wisdom part of how humans collectively figure out things is a very challenging path, very challenging way. It, it's evolutionary more than strategized. And we're, I don't know, what are we seeing about humans as part of nature? It's, it's not looking very good right now unless 1,000 years from now or 500 years from now we look back and go, well, it was good that, there was, that, that uh, 80% of the population got, didn't carry forward. You know, maybe they'll look at that in the future. I, 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 can't, I can't figure out those things. I just have to do the best I can with what I got. But money has become the global world religion as far as I'm concerned. certainly has made all these disparate worlds that, you know, there was the Incan and Roman empires around the same time that had no concept of one another. Now there's hardly anywhere in the world that doesn't know about the rest of it. So yeah. it's, it's, and one of the things that helped do that, oddly enough, has been currency. Yeah. And the accumulation of whatever, you know, currency, like I'm not too, if you, said, you said the word currency instead of money, but, yeah. but but Sorry. currency, no, it's, well, it's just, it's another whole, it is, yeah, it is. Um, the currencies, but the currency is like, what's the frequency, the electrical currency? That's what I like to think about with that word around money and back to these core drivers of fear, greed, and then more fear, more greed. Yeah. And so, um, that, that means that we lost our way and who was supposed to help us find our way and the institutions that got created to do that are the global world religions. And so I hold the global world religions at the biggest fault as the mystics and the wise people and the ones that actually get t- supposedly get time to think about the meaning of life and then help convey that to the rest of us. They have that role. And so... They've taken on kind of the domination, the concentration, domination, harvest of power and give us 10% cut and go back out on Monday and have at her yeah. and give me my next 10%. <laughs> See you on Sunday. Yeah. 
So that's like that's the that's where I see the thing bro- breaks down is there's no body of wisdom. Is it, where are the wisdom keepers and what's their role? Hmm. And so various in simpler times, so supposedly simpler, but earlier times, fewer people. Uh, so figuring out how to have a culture and when do we move from this valley to the next and who's going to be chief next or, th- or things like that. Uh, you could get it worked better because, but with the with the the huge success of this species in propagating ourselves, it just it's at a scale that wisdom. Yeah, it's hard to some nice thing over there on the shelf. Yeah, and who knows what gets lost? (laughs) What gets lost in translations and in burnings of libraries and floods and things that you know we've Mm -hmm. we've lost in time. And yet here we we're still here and peace and love and good feeling and the emotions and happiness and joy and is is still here alongside the wounded versions of that. Yes. You uh it it strikes me that you have a very um very present value for words and language and story and uh that's that's uncommon i think what's the pre- what does that mean present value well that you're very conscious of the words that are being used around you and the words that are coming out of your mouth specifically uh that's it just in the few moments we've had together i can tell that you're paying attention to what words i'm using and what words you're using yeah. uh so that that's to me a presence that yeah okay uh and that we've uh, we have had a crash course on who you are through the internet, but we've not had a chance to read your book. And I noticed there was a chapter in there about the storytellers. And I think you were just telling stories of people and their successes and failures and things. But uh, what uh, it seems with your book and your work in general that you are trying to write a new story behind the fiction of money. And if it's going to be a fable, why not make it fabulous for all is the vibe I'm getting. That's... It's po- it's all, that's all possible. There's plenty of it. So feel free to tell us how to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So money is an energy is an energy substance. It represents embodied energy of you could use a nicer word, but exploitation of labor and planet, harvesting of, use of, and concentrating it into a form that you can uh, claim and own and get things with and i can't i'm not i can't go as deep as moving to a life of that humans are just going to be on a spiritual plane and it all just happens and somehow there's wisdom floating around but it but because i think we're living in a temporal world and there's a lot of people and a lot of difference uh the religions and the governments are the two things that one supposed to guide us spiritually and the other's supposed to regulate the commons. So if those are done well, if those were done well, and they were wise, whatever that means, then uh, maybe things that would follow from that would help us. We still need some form of trade and things like that. In the book, I do uh, a... Uh, a, a <laughs> the $100 trillion plan for a soft landing for civilization by 2050. It is 10 or 12 political principles that are that long each. Mm -hmm. 
and it's uh, nine items. The first one is they're, they're ten trillion each, except solve climate and bring renewable energy is twenty trillion. Just to acknowledge climate a little better, the first ten trillion is reparations for colonialism and slavery, mm. and then the others are. Um, health, education, and welfare for everybody, and housing, and uh, life cycle responsibility for manufactured items, and things like that. They're just very, very simple. And my point, and then at the end of it, I say, obviously, this is all to stimulate conversation, and it's a, it's a metaphor. But you smart people, figure this out. How are we going to get through this? There's plenty of money. Yes. There's more than enough money to solve most things. Tax reform. Well, we just saw tax the biggest one of the biggest tax robberies mm-hmm. in history in the US. Well, if you make more fair taxation, that alone could shift the landscape of how things are balanced. But we've gotten so big, there's so many of us, and it's so complex now, you have to do other things for the soft landing. So, and as I told you a moment ago before the tape was on, that uh, I have my, the thing that I hold at the deepest level, you could call this spiritual, is that that nature won't get 100% annihilated. The planet will not turn into scorched earth, I don't think. If it does, the chances are some speck of something out in the universe, you know, it'll, some maybe. But even just, let's just take this planet. If we do serious, serious damage, that appears quite possible now. Uh, we're already doing lots of damage, but it could get a lot, lot worse faster. The plant kingdom will, again, uh, there will be things that if humans make it through, some humans do, which I think is likely, consciousness will rebirth due to uh, just things that are naturally available. So that's, that's if I go to the most extreme thing I can think about, and then so I get a little bit of peace, not from all the pain and suffering that'll happen to get there, but that in the end, maybe there'll be a second chance or a third chance or a fifth chance or whatever it is. Yeah, who knows what we're on. Who knows what we're on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, that, that, that's kind of, you know, I think it's important to go wherever you go, whoever, like figure out some cosmic or analytical or something that can give you some hope that as bad as it might get is how much suffering might have to suffer. Um, But we don't have to go there. We could rebalance things. We could regenerate. So I've spent my life not at some grand, not at a very grand scale of regenerating. I, I don't know how to do that. It's not big enough. But what can I touch around me? How can I be generative and regenerative with as many acts as possible? How can I forgive myself and rationalize the airplane I flew on yesterday, the plastic cup I'm sitting here with, the piece of equipment we're using? I, 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 don't have, I can't figure all that out. I think we can do them all better with less damage and, and with more wisdom. So that's why the inner skills are really the core. I agree with that. It sounds like you've been asking a lot of questions in your life, and you still seem to be asking 
those questions. In in the context of asking questions of yourself and of others, I mean, I imagine you get to uh, sort of rub elbows and, and, and move in circles that most people would not, would not. <laughs> You're in sort of rarefied air just by the work you've done. I mean, you started with Jimmy Carter. <laughs> That's a pretty good place to, to start. And it sounds like your even your mother was a pretty hip lady, mm-hmm. yeah. or is a pretty hip yeah. lady. Yeah, if you that, look at her body of work, you, yeah, it's deep and it's not obvious. It, it's not headlines, but if you see Rosalind yeah. Solomon, yeah, no, I, it, just so as you're out there asking these questions um, of yourself and everyone else, it doesn't seem like there. You know, there's obviously not a answer. You know, but it seems like you're digging up best practices and shining lights on them for other people to work on. And, and you're investing in people who are doing risky things that are unproven and un, you know, what are you, what are you up to there? I'm at some intersection of the mundane and the just kind of accessible. And how do I translate that to higher purpose? But you could... There are people who are much, much smarter than me at really going deep into the cosmic questions, and that's their career, or deep into the solution to what are what forms of energy are you know? Is they going to make energy from water? Are they going? And these kinds of like grand, uh, we're going to go to Mars, you know, and we'll rebuild there. I, and so that stuff doesn't. That's not my skill set, and it doesn't really interest me that much. Uh, I'm more interested in the kind of day-to-day and what are, what are just people, how do we just live decent lives and how do people feel good about themselves and, and feel safe enough in a complex, uh, unpredictable environment called life and eco, ecology and things. So, so I, I think what I've done and the reason I'm getting attention, like somebody wants to stop and interview me and, and do this kind of thing, is because I've worked really hard to make the the normal and the mundane higher yeah. and more meaningful. Like what's accessible? So I, I, I'm I'm just I'm not that high IQ. I'm a good IQ, you know. And and so what can I do? And I feel like that model. I've taken a lot of raw material, really, that was me, and it's grown into something just because of the practice. It's really the practice. What is my practice? And the practice is I want to do better. I want to be better. I want to feel better. I want to give better. I want to be useful. So I do think all of us can be extraordinary mm-hmm. by following what we know and are called to and developing integrity about it and, and uh, a life of practice. And I'm not talking about, I don't spend a bunch of time on the meditation cushion or in the, I, I, that's not, my practice is embodied life and be a good person. Yeah. You sound to me like a farmer and a gardener. You know, when you talk about the words, that, uh, you, you use farming and gardening terms to describe your work in finance and, and, and investment and in all this sort of stuff. Like a, like a really articulate, intentional Chauncey Gardner from that movie, uh, I never being, actually saw it, but I know about being that. there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you kind of got that, and not just the hat that you're wearing right now. That's a little bit of a gardener's. <laughs> it's it's because when I tried to figure out where to find answers, the natural world looked like the obvious. Yeah. It's like the natural world makes it. Yeah, 
and we're part of it. And we're a dangerous species within most, it, most but we're part of it. And so that's, that's it's like, I can't figure out all this fancy intellectual stuff, but I can see, oh, you take care of the soil, you plant seeds, you plant. And so I model everything on that instinctually at this point. So sometimes when th- these days when people say, what do you do? I go, like, I'm a, I'm a gardener of the relational field. That's what I, that's how I, that's one I can live with now. Yeah. And it covers all of the strange mix of things I do. Yeah. What's the weirdest, maybe objectively weirdest thing that you're invested in or that you're backing right now? The longest shot. Nothing fancy. Nothing fancy. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, the investments that we do are scattered across a landscape of what might take things a next step. Are the, do the people actually care about something? Why are they in it? So they care. And they're doing something that has heart and spirit in it that is to make things better in some next step. And we can't do the grandiose, we're going to carbon sequester with, or we're going to block the sun from, you know, and all these kinds of things. So I, I think, I think uh, um, I'm going to call myself a hero. I think I'm a hero of the mundane. You know, or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a devotee of the mundane turned into the grand. And and so back to well a great moment with humans is like what you know a loving moment or a inspired dance floor or a jump in that ocean and and what that feels like to swim around and so in the investing I mean we're doing uh, we invest in organic foods and green greener household products and and that's about reducing toxins. The toxins hit not only the person that eats the food, but they hit the river, they hit the workers, they hit the, your baby. Uh, so reducing damaging things and finding innovation for that and then creating uh, solutions for better use of things. So in food, we're in a company that's doing heavily in probiotics. So that's a new understanding coming up. Uh, and, okay, let's get more pro- probiotics in the mass market food system. First investment I ever made that ultimately built this house was uh, in Stonyfield Farm Yogurt when it was a nonprofit that was trying to prove small family farms mattered. And they had a, there was a loan fund. And so I put money in, and then they called me and said, we can't do it. we got to go and be a for-profit. We're selling too much yogurt with their five cows. We just The demand is... We, we got to become a for-profit. Will you convert? And and so, but that's probiotic contribution, real yogurt instead yeah. of chemical yeah. soup. And and so we do that kind of thing. And just how can we make food safer and more generative? And then all the ripple effect. And then our environmental technology part, we're in um, fiberglass windows and doors, which dramatically do better on insulation than aluminum and wood and everything else. Um, Traffic control technologies, which are helping cities manage the cars and everything, so it reduces emissions. And now they're getting into advanced transportation things and doing really, really well. And then an animal tracking technology that goes from minnows and sparrows to rhinoceros and uh, the biggest animals, which has to do with... Anytime major industrial projects, got to get an environmental impact study. We've yeah. got people studying species. Where are they? Where do they actually migrate to? How does this affect the salmon fry? 
um, all that kind of stuff. And so it's helping that kind of information. So there's there's no, there's nothing grandiose about those. These are and so part of the point there is not just because we're playing to our strength, but it's also its own message. Like that everybody can do stuff about this. Yeah, we we got trillions of dollars. This is the book, but a hundred trillion dollars in the next thirty years globally is again a metaphorical, but it's something like that is going to pass hands through death. Well, there's new values. Does that give us a chance? Are those new values really going to step up? Well, let's as elders or 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 preparatory elders, future elders. <laughs> future elders um, that's our job. Is to take is to try to help the future. So so there's a hundred trillion dollars. They say I think fifty trillion in uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico. Next thirty years. Uh, how many things could you solve with fifty trillion dollars or a hundred trillion dollars? A lot. So that's my kind of, is just keep it simple, um, accessible if possible, and uh, model it and preach it. you talk about people investing you know large sums of money in the future when it comes to little guys like us it's just basically the choices you make as a purchaser money what can what can we each do so first of all we can think about i'll go let's skip this like what is it but but where is it where did it come from Right this minute, I got some cash sitting in my pocket right now. How many, first of all, you can go, how many hands did that pass through? And what, how? What were all the transactions that led to that money? And am I happy about them? Do I have any responsibility for them? Okay, mm, okay, you can work on that question. Then as I use that money, do I have any responsibility for that choice? Well, yeah, I th- I think so. Or I encourage you to think about it. I have some responsibility. I can choose which bank. I can go to a credit union. I got I've got some amount of choice. Now, there's people. This is not as obvious. This is not as fair of a conversation for people that are surviving day to day. Sure. And so we'd have to talk about that separately. But there's a damn lot of affluent people who do have the ability to pay for a shelter over their head and to buy food and to go places and go to the movies or or things like that. A lot of them. And that's really who I'm speaking to in this answer. And so those of us that do have choice, uh, well, the first thing is stop complaining and take responsibility for that. And if you want to change that, then, but nobody's, you got to, you're making choices. So, what are you proud of with your money? What are you proud of with your deeds you do? When you go through your day, what you think about your day, did you do something you're proud of? Well, with your money, you, you need to start thinking about that. What could I be proud of? And it's not just about giving away money. It's well, who do I, what's the, how do I transact 
is every transaction about I'm trying to get something extra, I'm trying to outsmart you and get something. Um, and so there's just there's a lot of playing field there for emotional well-being, mental well-being, uh, and physical well-being, and then the actual money question itself. So name a topic. There is a body of literature or uh, topics or uh, careers or products that are out there and their choices to be made. Um, I don't feel good about all the choices I'm making. I, I mentioned earlier, like get, getting on an airplane to fly here and fly back and forth. I'm not sure that'll always exist on the planet. Or maybe people invent technologies out of water and air that'll you know solve it. But but so we have choice. So we have choice about what food we buy. We are increasingly going to know where the food came from, what was done to create it. Uh, which plastics are we buy? When we buy, how, how often are we going to buy plastic? Okay, so this, so to make all this very simple, we have choices. We should think about why we make which choice and take responsibility for it. And if it's about how do I invest? I got enough money now to do some savings. Where am I saving? Do I want to put it in a bank that's taking the money globally and building horror shows with my money? Do I want to put it in credit union? Well, what's a credit union do? It's still investing some money in that. But a lot of it is home loans for people. You want to get into critique of housing and it should be done differently than it is? Okay, then invest your money in co-op housing or whatever it is. Follow your beliefs and take responsibility for it. The rest, I imagine, is laid out pretty succinctly in your book. And I'd like to encourage people to get a hold of it. Uh, Amazon, I guess. Or you can kind of find a more responsible You can go way. through your local book yeah, uh, seller go. and order it. You can go online. There's uh, online uh, independent bookstore yeah. sources too. So do what – yeah, there's a good example. Thank you very much for your time, for uh, agreeing to see us at all. I, I mean, just we could have been anybody showing up here. you got to be more careful. Strangers <laughs> from the internet showing up at your house. I'm in dis- – I'm – I'm instinctually indiscriminate. Yeah, clearly. Well, you're just uh, anybody's coming up in here. <laughs> no, thank you so much, mm. man. Yes, thank you very much. Oh, total was... pleasure. I feel you know. Wonderful. Well, I mean, this stuff is part of my work now. Mm. I mean, I decided okay, I'm gonna share whatever I got, and I'm gonna go for it. And so, anytime somebody, I'm pretty much saying yes to any old weird people you know that show up. I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Joel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Tiffany here saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. 
If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An About tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a Van Build tab detailing how we did our van conversion. A journal tab and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. On the wall, they make me 